You're listening to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Benton, culture consultant and founder of Liberty Mind, and I want to inspire people to create unique company cultures where our human potential can thrive. In this podcast, I talk to organizations and employees about the impact of company culture. Together, we can make it thrive. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. First of all, I just want to say a really big thank you to everyone who has messaged or emailed me about how much they are enjoying season six. I enjoyed recording this season so much. It is such a passion project of mine and to have had the absolute honour of having the guests that we have in this season to say they would come along and be interviewed um, was just so exciting. So to know that the interviews that I've conducted and all of the insight and wisdom that is coming out of this season is reaching so far and being taken on board is so exciting and it really does give me a great sense of pleasure, especially during this roller coaster of a time um, during 2020 and the COVID crisis. And especially to those of you who are listening from afar, we've had people message in from Canada, America, Australia. It's mind blowing. And especially to little old me who has been recording this season in my home office in the UK in a little town called Stamford. Um, if any of you have never heard of Stamford before, Stamford Lincolnshire, I highly recommend you Google it. Um, it is the most quintessential um, British Georgian town and it is something straight out of a Jane Austen novel. So if any of you are history buffs like I am, then you'll really enjoy looking at some of the architecture that we have in this town. So whenever you're, uh, you know, able to come and visit, I do highly recommend it. It's a, a great little town to come and have a visit at. But that is why it gets me so excited to know that there are people all around the world tuning into this podcast and taking on all of this information and being so passionate about their company cultures. I think that just says so much about the time we're in. So please do keep messaging. It really does mean so much. Now, to, on today's podcast, we have a really exciting guest talking about artificial intelligence. Now, disclaimer alert, you do not need to know anything about artificial intelligence before listening to this episode. In fact, the less you know, the probably the better it is, because the more you're going to be open to receiving the words of wisdom and the insight that our guest has to share with us today. Now, I'm not an expert in artificial intelligence, and I suppose the big theme of the future is now, this season six, is really a little bit of even self-exploration for me. I really wanted to get under the skin of what is the next disruption? What are the things we should be learning more about? What are the things that we should be looking to embrace over the next five or 10 years to ensure that we're not only adaptable and agile to our ever-changing world, but to ensure that our company culture can remain strong and support the people that work within it. 
So today's guest is Peter Scott. Peter helps people understand what artificial intelligence is and how it will affect them. He's written a book, which I must highly recommend. If you have got an Amazon wish list, then put on their crisis of control, how artificial super intelligences may destroy or save the human race. I will add a link to Peter's book in the show notes. But Peter has given TED Talks and given evidence before an all-party parliamentary group in the House of Lords. He's got a master's degree in computer science from Cambridge University and for over 30 years Peter has worked for the Jet Propulsion Laboratories to support NASA's exploration of space. Yes, today my nerd dreams have come true as I get to interview someone who has worked at NASA. I mean, can it get any more exciting than this? So let's get started. Hi, Peter. Welcome to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. Introduce yourself and what you do. Hi, Lizzie. Thanks for inviting me. So I do a number of things, but the hat I'm wearing right now is futurist. I look at emerging trends in artificial intelligence. I help people understand how it will affect them, their businesses, the world, and It's motivated by wanting to make a better world for my children. I've got two girls, they're ages six and 10. And when I started thinking about their future, I realized that someone had to do more to help make that friendly. And I couldn't turn away. So I have a a book, I have a TEDx, I have a podcast, and here we are. So many resources that we can find you on, which is absolutely fantastic. I will ensure to link to those as well in the show notes for anybody that um, wants to find more of Peter's work. But there's a lot of confusion when it comes to what artificial intelligence is. Can you explain to our audience, Peter, the current state of AI and the evolution it's going through? Sure. Well, if you're confused about AI and what it is, then you're in good company because it's it's one of those things that can mean whatever you want. And we go through phases in history where people don't like to use the word because it doesn't get them very far. Or right now, people want to slap the AI label on everything. You know, they want to say their toaster does AI. It will get them more money. AI comprises a whole range of technologies at the moment. And whether or not they deserve the, t- the term AI is a matter of opinion or argument. But if we look at, for instance, the Gartner hype cycle for artificial intelligence for this year, you can see that they've broken it down into a couple of dozen factors that are at different stages of their evolution in terms of our expectations. And these go through a cycle of being triggered and then rising in visibility to a peak of inflated expectations where we think they can do everything and That naturally leads to a trough of disillusionment before eventually it levels out at a plateau of productivity. All the way on the right there, they've got GPU accelerators, which have been around for now so long. We know exactly what those are. They'll hold no surprises. Down at the bottom of the trough, they've got autonomous vehicles. I don't know that I would put them there myself. I think they've got some further uh, to fall off their throne. But uh, nearing the peak, they've got... 
a lot of hardware like deep neural ASICs and neuromorphic hardware is is coming up. So I think we will see a lot of hardware accelerating our AI trends as they make it possible for us to do more and more uh, capable things. The evolution of late in artificial intelligence has been around constructing bigger and bigger deep learning systems. And those have doubled in size every three months, which means that we're throwing even more power at these things, literally electricity, in order to build massive models. So the, the evolution is, is now going towards artificial general intelligence, which is now for the first time showing up on the Gartner hype cycle right at the beginning that we're actually starting now to talk about that without laughing in the same sentence. <laughs> Goodness me. I mean, it's absolutely mind-blowing. I know when I um, picked up your book, Crisis of Control, I was completely new to the concept of artificial intelligence. You know, I, I've heard it, you know, splattered around the media and in new product innovations. It's kind of become the buzzword, I suppose, of our generation and you know for many of us even what we've just, what we're going through a global pandemic was unthinkable let alone if we consider a you know super artificial super intelligences um, losing our job to these, um, you know, we, we like to call them robots in quotes, as people like to band that term around as well. And you really describe beautifully at the beginning of your book about how, um, you know, can you imagine, you know, possibly knowing that in however many years time, maybe 10 years time, uh, you discover a meteorite that's going to crash into the earth and destroy all of humankind. It's kind of the same sort of threat you kind of go on to say it's a very similar threat so but how real is the threat do you feel from artificial intelligence well if we're talking about the threat to jobs the the pandemic is a good lesson if nothing else it's got to be good for something right in disruption and the term k-shaped recovery has come into our vocabulary as a result i had to look up what that meant but it means that the recovery or the effect on employment of the pandemic is bimodal. Some things go down, some things have gone up. And if you plot that on a graph, then you get what looks like a K. So for instance, uh, Amazon hired 100,000 workers last month, and that was their fourth big hiring since COVID started. Of course, people are buying stuff online. Zoom, people make cardboard boxes. There are all on the ascendance, but at the same time, you've got things like the entertainment industry and theme parks and restaurants that are cratering. And it's going to be at least as complex as that when looking at the effects of artificial intelligence. And, and we're not able to even decide collectively whether that's going to create more jobs than it destroys. And this really frustrates me. All right, because our understanding of these socioeconomic effects is like on a par with the days when we thought thunder was gods banging around in the kitchen upstairs. And, and we do better than that. Now we've got atmospheric models. They go down to kilometer resolution. Why can't we do that for the economy? We've got enough computing power for that. We've got artificial intelligence. We should be able to tell the difference between whether this is going to create more jobs or whether it's going to leave people unemployed. There are so many predictions for this. One of the famous ones came out of Oxford University in the Oxford Martin program 
for the future of employment. And they said that 47% of jobs were at risk. Now you can look into that and see the details, but it's it's really not at all clear um, what their 2013 study would mean these days. We know, for instance, that transportation is a lot more uh, subtle and nuanced than all of the jobs that involve driving a vehicle on the highway, for instance, going away. So there's there's certainly going to be accelerated automation in some sectors. So if, if we think about the effects of the pandemic and we think about where people congregate in large numbers, uh, that's mostly consumers like entertainment or sports events. But when you think about workers doing the same, where does that happen? It's in offices, in cubicles. Well, they went home and worked remotely. So they're going to stay home for another year. And that means only the businesses that master remote work are going to survive. Now, hopefully, collaborative assistive technologies will boom and we'll get something better than what we're talking over right now. And maybe some kind of VR and AR. This is about time that we had that. But if the boss can't touch you, if their only interaction with you is via email, and if your responses to assignments look like something a machine could have produced, you can bet the thought's going to enter their heads. Well, could we automate this? So you need to make your output look more like the product of a human than a machine, which could be hard if your job has been so prescribed that uh, they really wanted a machine in the first place, they just couldn't find one. So the, the payoff for robotic automation is magnified in a pandemic. Um, albeit that happens in sectors where RPA is very hard to do and we're not quite there yet, like food service and autonomous vehicles. Amazon would love to have their fulfillment centers completely staffed by robots. I would bet that they are pouring some of their excess money into R&D since that would be a great way to increase their lead. So if you were hoping for a crystal ball, I don't have one, neither does anyone else as to where AI is going. And certainly the pandemic has changed the shape of, of that trend and those trends in in ways that it's changed so many other things that we couldn't predict. Absolutely. I, I think it's really interesting, like you mentioned about, obviously, that, that sense of automa- automation. I don't think sometimes people, um, maybe even businesses, are highly intuitive as to to what some of these processes could be I mean the current situation with COVID I think has provided a really interesting gap between those who were already maybe quite tech savvy and digitally aware and maybe those businesses that were still kind of living off spreadsheets and paper (laughs) it's it's massive inequality and I think this might also happen when artificial intelligence starts to be introduced more, when those businesses look at, okay, how and what are we automating, I suppose, is the question. Right. Uh, and that really is like a Rorschach test for people who steer businesses. You really have to ask yourself, what kind of business am I in on levels that you could get away with avoiding before? A classic example of a failure, and this is Kodak, for instance. Now, they actually invented the digital camera, believe it or not, but they had too much of their identity wrapped up and invested in making long, thin pieces of plastic that got wound into cameras. Ultimately, they couldn't see themselves as being different enough from that to avoid failing. And it's the double-edged sword 
of AI, which I find particularly appealing in that it forces us to confront these things. Now you can wait until it forces you to, to confront it, or you can start looking at it now in systematic um, procedural ways to find out what is your business really about? What do you want to do? If a machine could do what you're doing better, faster, cheaper, would you still do it because you like it? Or would you go, oh, thank goodness. I, I think I'd rather do something else. And I, I personally think that that's good to have that kind of dialogue, but I come from a, a background as a coach where we ask those kind of questions all the time. It's uncomfortable for many people to look at those questions because most people are naturally resistant to change and fearful of the unknown, more so as we get older. And if you think how many movies are based on the premise that we're off fan some fantastic benefit, but we turn it down because we want to stay with the, the devil that we know. That mirror that AI holds up to us is is one that we have to be willing to look into. And people who haven't examined their lives are often afraid of what they'll find when they look there. Any therapist will will tell you about this as they start working with someone. But often that's an unfounded anxiety. When we finally turn over that rock, we find it's not a cockroach underneath, but a hedgehog. It's, there was not as much reason to be afraid. That's so interesting. I think it's really, really true because especially in regards to the way people have adopted technology, I think sometimes there is that that resistance from businesses, especially that are maybe um, legacy businesses. So maybe they've already been, been around maybe, um, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, you know, and they've been operating for a long time. And there's always that slight resistance sometimes to adopt any form of technology, even that's just to simply improve business efficiency. Um, so it's really interesting, actually, that to, for you to sort of describe that and and explain that in a bit more detail because I think AI does appear to be increasing you know from my industry that I'm in regards to culture and I suppose it's almost in the human resources spectrum it's heavily becoming something that I keep seeing cropping up in apps or software or things like this it's almost becoming a trend to look innovative and tech savvy to say you've got some kind of AI implementation but can AI really help us in our workplaces or are we kind of dehumanizing our workplaces? Oh, it's not an either or. Uh, we're quite capable of doing both at the same time. We can use technology to dehumanize or we can use it to rehumanize. It's uh, a, a matter, again, of looking in that mirror. We are in a very competitive age. Competition has squeezed the margins of our businesses so much that businesses that don't scale, for instance, their human resources department capital, uh, as much as the rest of the business grows, uh, have problems when they've got their staff inundated with 100 applications per job opening. So they have to have some help. And AI is, is willing to do that. Turns out that interviewing people to assess their readiness for some position, their suitability for the, the company is something that can be automated. And we have to look at, well, have we invested our identity in that job being done by a human? And also we need to make sure that when we do automate it, that we automate it properly because it's easy enough to get it wrong in the same way that when so much work was outsourced overseas. I, I get the feeling that there were conversations 
going on in boardrooms with people saying, look, we can send this job to name your favorite country in Asia and pay a fifth of what we are paying in salary right now. And those people can speak English just as well as our staff. And that someone else said, well, you, but you know what? We could pay a tenth of what we're paying right now and get someone that hardly knows English at all. And everyone goes, yeah, let's do that. And so again, it's, it, it comes back to, it comes back to the people and, and who they are in a business. The problem has never been to build a better machine. That's going to happen anyway. The problem is always to build a better person. So uh, there's plenty of potential for this technology to be used for dehumanizing or rehumanizing. Think of how many jobs involve rote work. All of us have got something in our job, right, where you just sit there and you're pounding the same pattern of keys over again, click here, click that, copy and paste this over there, something like that. And you think, why am I doing this? This is like the modern day equivalent of um, sending children to sweep chimneys. There's got to be something better. Getting AI to do that frees us up to be more human. We just have to make the right choices. Mm, that is such a good point there, Peter. It really is. Like you say, I think it's interesting because with the idea of, you know, the potential of um, artificial intelligence and, and that kind of, I suppose, yin and yang kind of positive or negative kind of um, connotations, I suppose it's something that actually it come, it does come down to how we're creating the, the, those systems and those processes and what we're inputting in the first place because it's just like anything else we create I suppose um, as humans and um, maybe even our children and um, it's a, a nature nurture kind of situation if, if you know you're up bringing them up in a certain way hopefully they're a decent enough human being that other human beings want to be around them and I suppose that influence actually also lies within our creation of how we adopt artificial intelligence. Mm. Well, as a parent, uh, I'd like to continue holding on to the hubris that my children are a product of me, but I'm rapidly being forced to conclude otherwise, which is good news and bad news, but you don't control them. And there will come a point where our AI does things that we don't expect, but they are, are good things. We're already in some sense creating AI that can do things we didn't know how to program it to do. Like image recognition is like that. That's, a, that's an obvious one, facial recognition. We don't know how we do that as people. If it were true to say that computers can only do what they're programmed to do, they couldn't do facial recognition because you can't write down how to do that. You just do it. But it turns out that we can train AI to do that just by giving it enough examples. And now the question is how many other things can AI do if we train it with enough examples. And what we're finding now is that there are a great many more things that can be done well enough with that model than we were previously suspecting, even though it takes enormous amounts of deep learning modeling. 
I feel like when we talk about the future with businesses, there's some resistance. And I can kind of understand this. Um, I mean, Peter, your your book was actually the first book that I've ever delved into um, artificial intelligence. So I don't know whether I, I kind of skipped and went straight to the extreme. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I basically adopted, uh, kind of nabbed this off my partner who, who came and saw you speak. And, and he was like, oh, you should really read this book. And so I ended up kind of stealing it off him to have a good read. And, um, you know, it's hard not to read it and have some kind of internal existential crisis. I mean, it's it's very kind of, you know, brilliantly put, put across. But there is a part of you that as a human, you do start having these huge fundamental questions about um, your actions and the way you're um, doing things in your own business um, and like like you very clearly mentioned in the book as well it's as if we're talking about something that can only happen at the movies it's something where we can only see in Star Trek or you know some of the other sci-fi movies that we we, we get to go and see whenever Covid's over um, but why do you think people are resistant to really understanding it is it you know that we're slightly fearful of it um, or is it that we just don't understand it well, both. We are fearful of things we don't understand. And AI is growing so fast that even if your knowledge is only a couple of years out of date, you're in for a rude shock if you find out what's been happening in 2020. And and this is this is about human psychology. And as a, a coach, we know there's a difference between someone that has not experienced coaching before, hasn't thought about their life in that way, and someone that has been through that process. There's a, a fundamental shift that happens in introspection and, and, and evaluating your life from this meta perspective, this higher altitude. And a lot of the things that you're talking about and that I talk about in the book are things that won't be issues for some years, but will require a lot of work and a lot of time to prepare for. Some of them will take generations to prepare for. Hopefully we have generations of time to get ready for that. But the resistance, that depends on where you are. The more high-tech sector, they are less, less resistant. And they're happy to deal with that and some people want their lives to be radically changed beyond recognition. And then there is, you know, I, I experienced the, the feeling sometimes, you know, things were simpler when I was learning about computers 30 years ago. It would be easy to go back to that and all of these things that when you introspect, you realize, yes, that's, that was a, because it was a more predictable time. And now... We're living in a fundamentally unpredictable time, and we have to get used to it. And that's one of the the basic shifts we have to make inside. Yeah, I think that sits heavy as well with people when it comes to that realization that you have to look internally to really understand your your external. And I, I mean, it was interesting because when I after I, I got your book, I started doing a bit like like anyone does when they've really got quite obsessed about a book. I then was, was kind of like, right, I need to find more. And I watched your TED talk about, you know, how as a collective, we need to make be making conscious decisions. And that really, that really sort of sat with me. 
and that actually the, the, the decisions that have been made for us are actually ultimately choices we have made as a collective. And it's it really resonated with me because I think it's something that we often see in our um, society that, oh, this is being chosen for us, but actually it's it's us who make the decisions, what, we, what we're buying into. How do you think we can shift people's thinking to realising that this collective power and that all of our choices matter in these big unknowns, that actually how we turn up to these um, trends and these new things that are going to come how can we shift people's thinking? What's your thoughts on that? Well, that's a huge question. And and that was the, the question I was trying to raise in my TEDx talk, that our response to technology is one we often want to blame on either some cabal somewhere or, or happenstance, that technology is now accelerating the pace of our lives. How many people asked for this? How many people asked to be woken up at two o'clock in the morning with a, a page from a, a computer that needs help and uh, to to have to stay current on Twitter uh, lest some trend blow up in 30 seconds that uh, eviscerates your market. And it's certainly a, a truism and a trope to say we have met the enemy and he is us. And, and, and then we often take the wrong lessons away from that and say, well, okay, then each of us has the power to, to solve this problem completely. But that doesn't work on global scales. For an example, climate change. Yes, everyone needs to do something about that, but no amount of individuals recycling and... Um, using electric cars and, and so forth is going to make the kind of change that has to be made by national and international levels. But the thing is that we set up those national and international structures. They exist because of us. And the kind of systems thinking that would reveal how we did that is huge in scope. And I was picking a very challenging thing to try and convey in my TEDx talk. You should have seen how many revisions it went through. But, but to just start asking the question of how do we change those structures, this is probably the hardest thing we will ever do as a species is to realize our collective power. Because if you, if you look at this from the level of what could we be doing, it's apparent we're operating at a tiny fraction of our collective potential. It's like that old saw, which actually is not true about we only use 10% of our brain, except that we are far less than 10% of the capacity that we could be operating at. And it's not individually, it's collectively. You saw like a little bump in it when COVID started and people came together around the world to launch scientific inquiries, uh, huge amounts of uh, research and uh, computing power all being poured in the same direction. And that's a, a, a fraction, but if we look at the structures that we have around the world that are uh, used for solving problems like that, uh, and you say adopt the um, viewpoint of a computer program and you look at that like it was a computer program, you'd be fired. It's horrible. It, it's, it's, it's ridiculously inefficient. If we can figure out how to bring that together 
and the only people that's going to do that is us, there's no programmer, then we would be knocking these problems off like bowling pins. I think what we haven't realized now is that capability is within our reach. There's, there's a, there are stories about how elephants in the circus um, can be, if you go to a circus that still has an elephant, you may go around the back afterwards and see the elephant there and it's tied to this little stake in the ground. And you think, well, that's weird. This big elephant could pull that stake out anytime it wants. But the, the thing is that since it was a baby, it was tied up to a stake like that, at which point it couldn't get away. And it grew up thinking, well, this stake is all it takes to keep me where I am because I can't get further away. It's beliefs structures are rooted in what it's grown up with. We, humanity, we have grown up with the belief that we can't do this because we don't have the communication structures and processes to be able to work together at that kind of scale, except now, thanks to computers and AI, we do. That's what we need to be looking at. That is so fascinating, Peter. I think it's really interesting that you've picked, used that example because even I've just sat there and gone, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a mindset. It's amazing how actually maybe it's a big mindset shift that uh, our human species needs to go through in order to reach that. Because I mean, without a doubt, we're going to come up to this AI revolution. It, it's sort of on its way, really, um, as you very sort of clearly demonstrate in your book. What advice would you give to businesses right now, Peter, about AI? Is it something that they should be looking into? Is it something they should be considering? Well, my advice to business depends heavily on which sector they're in. Just think about the K-shaped recovery we're in right now that applies in so many dimensions in artificial intelligence. Just to break it down in uh, along a quadrant, as I sometimes do, if you're in a traditional product-based industry, think like detergent or supermarket chains, then if you're not in the top tier of the capital of the, uh, that businesses, you should probably get out now while you still can, because the bigger players are going to invest in AI to automate their supply chains, their customer relationship management, and they'll scale that out across the enterprise and, and eat you alive. In traditional service industries, think insurance, I would say work on establishing personal relationships, rehumanize your contact with the customer so that the job of the, the person that interacts with the customer is not just to get them to fill out a form, but relate to them, understand them, do what a computer can't. And then you can use AI for the back office and the other things that you're not that good at anyway. And if you're in a disruptive product industry, something like iPhones, for instance, as an example, then use AI to assist what you're best at, which is human creativity. Automate the non-creative functions. And if you're in a disruptive service industry, the search engine optimization, say, I, that's been around long enough now, maybe it's not so disruptive, or, or you're an AI analyst, say, you're the least vulnerable to automation. And again, leverage that. Don't try to compete on uh, who's got the biggest factories, for instance. 
something like that. Leave that to to someone else. Just keep disrupting, keep coming up with new ways of serving people because AI will not, for at least quite some time, be able to do that as well as you can. What I, uh, when, I'm, when I'm showing presentation, I put up something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, which is this pyramid. And Abraham Maslow was a psychologist who said, we have to have, and he points at the bottom of the pyramid here, our physical survival taken care of before we can do things like deal with our emotional welfare and belonging, and this is going up the pyramid, and learning, and finally, self-transformation, uh, self-actualization. Well, and, and then what I do in these presentations is I turn that upside down and I say, if you're running a business, you've got to start here. You've got to start with the self-actualization the introspection, the understanding who you are and what your business is about. If you want the physical survival of your business to not be left up to chance, because the forces that are going to reshape our businesses and our production through automation are big enough that you might be the next Kodak. You've got to be willing like they weren't to consider what you're really there for. What is your real purpose? That's at the top of the traditional Maslow's hierarchy. We can no longer predict or plan as effectively as we used to. So we have to prepare. It's like the Boy Scouts. Be prepared. It's like you're heading for darkest Africa. And, but this is at a time when the map just says unexplored and it's got all this white space where you're going. You've, you have no idea what's going to be there. So you prepare. And what do you prepare? You prepare yourself. That's the, that is the, the main thing. And there are ways of obviously lots of techniques and uh, processes and methodologies for doing that. Again, mostly sector dependent uh, that uh, I get into with, with specific businesses. And I've got a partner in the United Kingdom, Katie King. Some of you might want to look her up. She's been doing a lot of this work there. Amazing, Peter. Honestly, I've absolutely loved our chat. And I think the insights and the knowledge that you've shared with our audience have, are going to certainly give people food for thought, that is for sure. Um, but for those of you listening, I would highly recommend um, that you go and grab Peter's book from Amazon. So it's Crisis of Control, How Artificial Superintelligences May Destroy or Save the Human Race. And I would also recommend you watch his TED Talk and also check out the podcast AI and You that Peter does as well. But I will link to all of those in the show notes. But thank you so much, Peter, for giving us your time. Well, thank you, Lizzie, because it's always a privilege for me to have an opportunity to reach more people with this message. I, I don't do this because it makes money, because it, it doesn't. I don't do this because it's particularly natural for me, because as a computer nerd, isn't. I do this to try and help my children and other people, and because for some reason I seem able to do it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much, Peter. Have a wonderful week. 
You've been listening to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast with me, your host, Lizzie Benton. If you've enjoyed listening and want to keep up with all things culture, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to welcoming you back next week.